really about unity in the church, and then what are we unified around in the church? And then what are some of the sources of disunity? So we've covered the first half. We're going to talk this morning about biblical principles to navigate through conflict. We have a video like we normally do and all that, but before we before we get in um, to the to the lesson, I want to read a passage that's significant about the church. Because I don't think you can talk about unity and not grasp the place of the church in God's economy. Um, unity is not about friendships. Biblical unity is not about how I feel about you, how you feel about me, how we feel about one another or pastors or anything else. Unity is, is about the truth and about the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, those are the two components that are there. And so this passage is about the grace of God, the amazing grace of God that has come to us, that brought us not just into this unique organism called the church, but all the way from this distance of being aliens, strangers from the covenant, enemies of God, being brought into something brand new that God is doing. It's always been salvation by grace. It's always been through faith. It's always been a sovereign work of God from day one. But in the dispensations, God had a purpose and plan for Israel. And He fulfilled that. And we understand all of the Bible is to reveal Him and to accomplish His redemption through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's the theme of the whole Bible. But how is God unfolding that plan? Well, through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, Joseph, and then uh, from the, the, the sons of, of Jacob going into Egypt. Egypt is an incubator. They go in as a family of 70-some. They come out with a couple million people. God raises up the liver of Moses, leads them out, gives them his law. All of that in that dispensation. Um, you were alienated from God. Uh, and it wasn't because Deuteronomy tells us, Exodus tells us, it wasn't because Israel was so great or because they were so pretty or because they were so obedient. I mean, you read your Old Testament, you know sure that's not the reason. It's because of God's covenant, because He made a covenant with did it by their own to do with him um God does something brand new he forms the church which is the body of Christ and now Jew and Gentile are brought together in one body. And, and we understand our eschatology, that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And we've been preaching that in, in Revelation. Um, so God will bring the nation to repentance, those who are alive, those who are Israel of Israel. Paul said not all of Israel is Israel. Um, 
And in the meantime, the church is provoking them to jealousy and preaching the gospel. But during this time, the latter days, Paul says, between the first coming and the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, God is forming this thing called, called the church, and you're part of it. And all of that is necessary to really grasp the context of unity. We're part of the Moose Lodge. Whatever. No, we're, we're members of this new thing that God is doing to where there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but one in, in Christ. And so he says in verse 11 of Ephesians, Therefore remember that formerly, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Do you remember when you were outside of the church, when you were separate from Christ? I do. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were you you were not part of the circumcision. And what's the circumcision? It's the sign of the covenant. You weren't part of the covenant. You're separate. You're excluded. You're strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? And he's doing the same thing here as he did in, in the early part of Ephesians, chapter 1. But God, being rich in mercy. He's doing the same thing. Verse 13. But now, formerly you were, but now, in verse 13, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, not circumcision or Jewish ritual, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and the result so that he him, that in himself he might make two into one new man, new man. Something new. Both in one body to God through the cross and having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The same gospel is preached to both Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer... ...prophets, they laid the foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone upon this rock I'll build my church. In whom the whole building... So now you're part...
foundation. Jesus Christ's gospel being the 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 beginning. in a holy temple in the in in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into work and unity is vital in that in that work the growth that's there can be stunted can be affected the spirit desires to dwell in the midst of God's people. There are two ways the Spirit the Spirit's indwelling, at least two, is talked about. I understand you are a temple individually. The Holy Spirit lives in you. But in First Corinthians three he says you all are the temple of God. So there is an individual indwelling and when those indiv- that individual indwelling gets together and gathers together in its The Church of Jesus Christ, there is a unity of the Spirit that happens there. And you've, you've been there, right? I mean, you've been on a mission trip. You've been somewhere where you don't know these people at all. You have nothing in common with them. Probably been in places that bear the name of Christ and they're apostate, and you're going, these are not my people. These are, there is no gospel here. Um, and what a beautiful thing that we're part of. So let's pray, and then we'll get into ways in which we'll preserve some unity. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to hear your word, be reminded of what you've done. Lord, I confess sometimes whenever I read I, 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 and, I, and I grasp through spiritual eyes what you have done, it's a gift from you, um, I, I stumble, I fail at finding words to be able to articulate my thanks and how profound uh, the things are that I'm hearing and how inadequate my tongue is to be able to express praise and gratitude. Um, I was not just going uh, to hell and separate from you, but I had no hope. We were alienated. We didn't even have the covenants. We didn't even have the shadows like the, the, the Israelites did. They had something to remind them. We were blessed, even, the, even unbelieving Israel. You have brought us, these brothers, and I this morning. And I thank you for the apostles and the prophets and the work that you did through them. I thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. I thank you that that work is still going on today in, in being built up, being equipped. the work outside the church and I pray that you would help us to preserve the bond of peace and unity um, through realizing how precious the church is um, and being unified around the truth and the truth alone I ask it in Jesus name Amen
So we're not we're on we're not going to be on page 58, but we are going to be on page 60. And uh, about um, some of the reasons for for conflict. So it's kind of the opposite of, of unity. There's we're only watch about three minutes of it, so I'll break and then. Uh, principles to be able to navigate uh, through that. Did the sound bar turn off? Probably. Do we even have the sound plugged in? Yes, we do. Yeah, let's turn it on. There we go. Let's try it again. Everybody seems to have is why do we experience so much conflict in our relationships? One of the questions that everybody seems to have is why do we experience so much conflict in our relationships? And my way to think about that is not why is there so much conflict in our relationships? I think the other. I'm just impressed that there isn't a whole lot more. And the reason is if you understand what the Bible teaches about sin, you immediately understand why we have so much conflict. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says that Jesus came so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. What what Paul is saying is that the DNA of sin is selfishness. Uh, Sin inserts me in the center of my world. Sin makes me reduce the field of my concern down to my wants, my needs, my feelings. Sin makes me a little self-sovereign. Sin makes it all about me. So what that means is that sin, in its fundamental form, is antisocial. I was meant to live an upward and an outward life. Upward of loving worship toward God. Outward in self-sacrificing love to neighbor. Sin turns me in on myself and makes me so self-obsessed, so self-focused, that I have little time, actually, to love another person. And there's a third thing. If, if the DNA of sin is selfishness, and sin is antisocial in its fundamental form, then that means that sin will cause me to dehumanize the people in my life. What does that mean? It means they quit being objects of my affection. They become vehicles or obstacles. If they love them, I'm thankful they're in my life. Cards and flowers, occasional chocolate. <laughs> But if they stand in the way of what I want, I'm spontaneously angry and irritated. I mean, think. Think for yourself of how little of your anger in the last month had anything to do whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God. 
You're not angry because God's law is broken. You're not angry because God has been displeased. You're angry because somebody had the audacity to get in the way of something you want, something you think is a need, something you feel. Well, if you see that, you, you will not find a greater argument for the need of our being rescued by God's grace than the conflict that we have. It's right there in James 4. James asked the, that question, why are there so many fights and quarrels? He doesn't answer because of those creepy people that you live with. His answer is, don't they come from your desires? That battle within you want something, but you can't get it. There it is. Well, speaking of relational conflict, so you want me to just sing just as I, as I am right now? <laughs> well, well, it is, uh, it is uh, <clears throat> unity is something that has to be preserved. Um, you know, page 58, Jerry talks about the church being the most glorious living organism ever conceived in the untraceable mind of God. I really like that line. And the church's possession of God, exquisite, exquisite workmanship of the wise, of His wise and holy character. She has been purchased with the blood of Christ and the Lord, the unrivaled head of the body. She is loved, adored by every saint who, by grace, enjoys sweet entrance and fellowship. We talked about that in Ephesians. She is fiercely hated by Satan and has fallen host and continually is under siege by the world, which cannot tolerate her powerful and living dynamic of sanctification unto, unto holiness. The church is a precious thing. And so last, so last time, time, Jeff talked about the underlying basis for all the unity. Um, and it comes from grace, grace saturated by grace, and then and comes the common causes of division amongst the, amongst the saints. And, and there, there are, are relational. There, there, there is there relational is conflict in the church. church. While you are, are individuals, individuals that are part of the body of Christ, Christ it's possible for for disunity to, to happen. I've been part of it. I've seen it. It's, it's ugly. I remember being a brand new Christian and conflict happening in Red House, the church that that I was that I was saved in. And, and watching the leaders grapple with, with trying to deal with it, and dealing, and dealing with it in very unbiblical ways or means. Um, there, there were some, some who took sides. There were others, others who, who just wanted the conflict to go away. I can remember that it boiled over. Like like a lot of carnal conflict is silly. There was a man in a congregation. Who's, who had a, re, had a relative that was also in the congregation, and they got they in an argument over property. Somebody died in the family and left a piece of property to this younger couple, which was his son-in-law. And he didn't think that he was worthy of that. So they got in conflict in their family and brought that conflict into the church. And the pastor got involved because the older gentleman said that he, that he saw, saw the pastor on the piece of property with the younger couple and therefore the pastor was taking sides with the younger couple when in reality 
the pastor was just shepherd. shepherd. He was just there, and he would not listen. And he he it, it boiled over. He stopped coming to main service. He only came to Sunday school. And then we had to deal with with him talking about only coming to Sunday school and not coming to church. And the next thing you know, we're in the middle of a good old fashioned Baptist business meeting. Have you ever been in one of those? I hope you have, because it's not fun. And I remember, and I remember the, the, the tension. tension. And I'm a and I'm new, a new Christian. Christian. And I'm, and I'm, I'm reading, reading you know, you know, one body, body, one spirit, one faith, one, faith, one Lord, one, one baptism. Is, what is what going, is going on, on here? And, and, and I don't, I don't really, really, I'm not mature enough uh, uh, that this guy is probably He's probably a believer in the church. I mean, he's coming to church, professes salvation, he sings, he looks like a nice guy. And, and our, our treasure was the meeting. meeting. And so, and we, so come we come into this meeting where this, this, this whole thing, thing is going, going to be aired out, out which is which another unbiblical way to handle it. You know, Paul says in verse 14, whatever, whatever comes before, before the congregation, the congregation we're con- we were congregational just like we are. But Paul, but Paul says, says whatever, whatever comes before the whole congregation is only that which edifies. So, so if, it, if it, doesn't it doesn't edify, it doesn't come before people. Because if you, 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 you don't think that, that 12, 12 elders can solve something, put it before, put it before 500. Back, back to this. And you'll see what's solved. So that's so that where it goes. And, and there, there were people who were on different sides, and they walk in, and, and it is tense. tense. And when the when meeting the starts, starts, I go, I go up front. And get on my knees and begin to pray because I, I just I don't know what else to do. I just feel the tension, you know. And I saw people do that before. You know, you go to the altar and you pray. So that's what I'm doing. I'm there. I'm praying for this really tense, you know, this this tense moment. And the moderator of the meeting, and we had talked as leadership what we needed to do. Like if it's going to come to this point, I mean, we're going to have to put this couple out of the church. And they, and they show up at me in order to do that. So, so it's, already it's already been decided. I mean, this is this after, after months, months of trying to pursue them, them and months of them sowing discord and appealing to them and otherwise that, that they've already, they've already had letters sent. sent. This, this is the congregation meeting where discipline is going to have to happen on this couple. And they, they showed up at me. So, so that's, that's what's going to happen. This means. The church has been notified. So just to set the context for you. So when they come, they come it's obviously tense. tense. What's going to happen? And the, and the moderator of the meeting, who was part of the, the decision-making, and he says, you know what? You know what? I just don't, just don't think Jesus would be pleased with, with, with disunity. disunity. Can you feel, Can you feel the tension, tension in here? You know, yeah, yeah, amen, I feel the tension in here. I, and I forget the guy's name, you know, Clyde. Brother Clyde, Brother Clyde you, 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 you have an offense against Pastor Joe. Joe. Yes, I, yes do. I do. Well, well if he would shake your hand right now, would you be willing to forget that offense and, 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 move, and on? move on? And he said, yes, I, yes, I would. Well, Brother, well, Brother Joe, would you, would you be willing to shake Brother Clyde's hand? You know, what's the pastor going to say? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and he said, well... Of course, I would shake his hand, but I don't think that would solve, you know, the problem. Well, why, well, why don't you two brothers just come on up here and shake hands and hug it out, and we'll be unified as a church? 
And of course, the, the unbeliever and the guy was going to put out, he marched right down the aisle and sticks his hand out, you know, to the pastor. Of course, Pastor Joe shook his hand. And, um, praise the Lord be eternal. And that's how the issue was dealt with. Now, do you think that issue was dealt with? It was a mess. Um, and the, and the whole reason after talking to this brother, he's a good man, the moderator, the guy that did this. He he was he, he felt, felt so much tension over having to unity that he just wanted to defuse it. He wanted it to go away, but he used unbiblical means to try to make it go away. So what are some principles that you can apply in actually dealing with situations like that? And then you need to learn biblical principles to navigate through it. That's what we're going to look at today. So we're on page 60, number 4. Principles for bringing unity to divided leadership. This is leadership, but you can apply disunity in the And first and foremost, separate biblical principles from personal preferences. Trip asked how much, how much of our anger in the last month or whatever time period he gave really, really had to do with the righteousness of God versus someone, someone stepping on our toes. And the answer that's probably very little, if any. Okay? How much, how much conflict in, in, in relationships in the church, in the church in general, in church church in general, general any even leadership actually has to do with doctrine versus... versus Stepping, stepping on somebody's personal preferences. Very little. Most of the conflict has, has to do with, with a preferential issue. And I, and I understand the, you know, the common, the Bible, Bible versions, versions or, uh, you know, having drums from the church or whatever, whatever it might be. be. There's a, a, there are things that go much deeper than that. Than that. People, People are, are unified around their preferences, preferences a lot quicker than they're than unified around the doctrine that that you the doctrines that you find in the Bible. So when you're when dealing, you're dealing with Jesus, Jesus, you have you to have separate. You have to, you have to identify, identify what really is the issue, and then, and then where does this stand in God's economy? The deity of Christ same level as the way people dress whenever they come to church. Now, does the Bible have something to say about the way we adorn ourselves? Yes, it does. But, but if, we if women wear pants to church, they're not going to be damned to hell. They if they deny the deed of Christ, they are. If you, if you homeschool versus, versus Christian school, that has, that has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven. heaven. But, that's but that's a big deal, deal to me. And there can and there be problems, problems that come to church. So you have, you have to identify... Biblical, Biblical principles, principles from, from personal, personal preferences. preferences. And, and the, the, the most, most profound, profound passage on this is Romans 14. So I want you to turn there because you haven't read Romans 14. You haven't studied it. You should. Uh, because it's kind of the common dealing with principles versus preferences. Not, Not everything in leadership church is a matter of clear biblical mandate. You understand, you understand the Bible, Bible does command, command and prohibit. Black and white. They're black and white in the Bible. They're do's and don'ts. But a whole lot of Bible is principles. 
There are principles there, there that you then have, have to apply. apply. And that's, that's where the conflict comes. You apply a principle from somebody else. Now, now you can't you disagree on the principle, principle because that comes from the text, and the text reigns. But how do you put that principle into practice? Is where, is where a lot, a lot of, of the fun comes from. And 1 Corinthians 14 tells us how to do it. When strong, when strong disagreements arise, godly leaders go to work making clear distinctions between preferences and explicit or implicit. Is it explicit? Don't do it. Or is it implied? Which bind the conscience. Romans 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not, not for the purpose, purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. opinions. And that, that sets, sets the context. Opinions. One person has faith that, that he may eat all things, and but he who is weak eats vegetables only. One who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And that, that's... I mean, verse 1 through 3 sets the context for the rest of Romans 14. And, and right there is the command to do in the dog. The one who eats, the one who has freedom, is not to look down on the one who can't. Now, I, I, I can't mow my grass on Sunday because that's a big deal to me. And the person who says, well, I went to church and I don't have a problem with my grass on Sunday doesn't, doesn't look at the person says, I can't regress on, on Sunday and go, come on, dude. I mean, I we're mean, new covenant believers. I mean, really? really? Is, I mean, that's and really that's, weak. That, that's, that's what whole contempt here means. You don't look down. down. You're your worth is useless in faith because you hold this, this principle, principle and make this, make this application, application that I don't think I'm going to tour. And then he flips the coin. And the one who is not even. The person, the person who won't mow the grass on Sunday, who won't watch the on Sunday, and you can fill in the blank with any other thing, is, is not to judge. What does that, what mean? that mean? It means, it means condemn. condemn. It means, it means to, pass to pass judgment, judgment on, that on that person. It means to condemn. To, condemn. to conclude that what they're, they're doing is sinful. Because you're, because not, you're not God. God. Only God can do it. Only God can say, say that what you're applying the principle is sinful. Or someone else is. You're, you're, you're not the one who's able to do that. And that's what he's going to say before, before you don't, you know, one servant Because before his master stands or falls, not before another slave. So before the Lord, if they're doing this, I'm not going to mow grass on Sunday. We're, we're going to, we're going to have family devotions all day long. If he's doing that with sincere conscience under the Lord, there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God. Praise God. And, I have, and I, have no right, right, I have no right, you have no right, to, to voice your conscience, your conscience the way you're applying your right that principle on that of the brother. brother. And on the flip, on the flip side, side, if he's there doing that as unto the Lord, if you are unto the Lord inviting people over to your house to watch Sunday night football, that brother who won't turn the TV on is not to go, I cannot believe that you're doing that. Are you even saved? You see how it works? Because if he's doing that in a clear conscience, then before the Lord is the one he stands. But God will, will work those angles out. Now that has nothing to do with what the Bible explicitly commands. Because God's already spoken. And he's spoken very clearly there. And we understand all the other passages about limiting our liberty. 
for conscience sake and for others sake and those kind of things but this is how you 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 work it out and godly leaders make clear they'll intervene in a situation and help the two parties or help the church as a whole or help the factions or help the individuals to dis, uh, to make distinction between preferences and what is explicit and what is implicit explicit it's church discipline because it's explicit what the Bible says, what God says, not my opinion. It's not what Timberlake Baptist Church does, what the Bible says. I mean, you say amen. But whenever you think back on issues that you've had with others, doesn't everything seem to gravitate in the explicit commands? I mean, we're all the, the strong ones in this passage, right? I mean, we are the ones that work the angles rightly. I mean, we always see ourselves that way. And if it's if we're passionate about it, then it is a big deal. And so it's easy to think it's explicit. So model and teach, not only do they do they distinguish between what is a principle and what is a biblical command, but then they model and teach James one, two through five through every conflict. Now what is James one, two through five? Well, you know it well, but you can turn there. They model and teach James 1, 2 through 5. Count it all joy, right? My brethren, when you encounter various trials. Is, a con- is conflict a trial? Do you like conflict? I hate conflict. I don't enjoy conflict. I want the unity of the Spirit, and I want to go forward for Christ. But there's a pitfall in that, right? God uses conflict. He uses trials to accomplish things. So conflict's not bad. In fact, it can be your friend. It can force you to deal with things that you wouldn't otherwise deal with. And conflict is part of the fall. It's natural. What's the very first sin that you find after the, after the fall in the garden? Murder. That started with conflict. That James 4 really expresses the desires in, in Cain's heart that were unfulfilled. He lusted after... And then he ended up killing his brother for it. Leaders cannot be effective if they run from conflict. And when men are tested for leadership competency, they should demonstrate a willingness to embrace the challenge of trials in the ministry or in their marriages or in their small groups or in their one-on-one relationships. Conflict can make you a chicken liver. Don't do that. It will not serve you, and you're not serving someone else by just listening and nodding and hoping that God... If you walk away from a conversation and you think, wow, they're really messed up, and you didn't tell them that they're messed up, you may need to evaluate whether you're a chicken liver. (laughs) Because offending people is what the truth does. And so you can go through life and not offend anybody. And you can avoid conflict. But James says that that trial of conflict actually brings about maturity 
And a faithful man will go in and tell somebody what they don't want to hear. No one in leadership should be spoiling for a fight. You met that guy, right? Um, they typically bloviate. Bless God, I'll tell them. And they're disqualified for a ministry to begin with. First Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy. That's not a godly man. If one of your men seems to stir up strife and rather enjoys doing so, they must step away from leadership until they deal with the pride that causes it. What happens to churches or small groups or deacon boards or elder boards or whatever where you have a man like that? What happens after a period of time to the rest of the people on there? They become like that man. Why, why are so many... Uh, now, this is an overstatement. This is one of the reasons. I'll say it this way. One of the reasons that pastors in, in, in conservative Baptist churches are run out of the pulpit is because they train their people to be nasty humans. And then those people end up turning on the guy that he stood up there and thumped his chest for, you know, for however long, rather than being humble and, and gracious and gracious man. That's not all the time, but I'd say it's a lot of the time. It's pride, and then your people become proud, and then they learn how to handle things by listening to you. On the other hand, if leaders run at the sign of conflict, they will not only miss sanctifying grace of the trial in their own life, but they'll leave the sheep vulnerable to the enemy's schemes. I think one of the hardest things to do as a Christian and as a leader is to tell somebody something that they don't want to hear at the moment. Knowing, or this way, not knowing how they're going to respond to it. When you know that this is the truth and you have to bring that to bear on their life, and there is a good chance, because you know their spiritual temperature by leading them, that when you tell them that, they're going to bolt. And you know where they're going to run is worse than where they're at right now. I mean, that's just, that'll keep you up at night if you're a faithful leader. So you can't run from it. You can't stir it up. So what do you do? You trust the promise of God that God has a way through the trial. It's not Brother Clyde shake Brother Joe's hand and we'll go on about our business. Use the trial to produce endurance. MacArthur takes the position that the thorn in the flesh, you know when the Apostle Paul prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be removed three times? MacArthur takes the position that that thorn in the flesh is a man in Corinth. So I understand some people take the position it's a physical ailment, you know, his eyes or whatever it is. But MacArthur, he says I can't be dogmatic about it, but Paul loved the Corinthian church so much and they were so dysfunctional and a burden to his heart. Obviously, you read 1 Corinthians, you know how dysfunctional they are. There is a demonically fueled man, you know, and meaning that he's demonized. Either he's an unbeliever or he's someone who is, is very blind 
and he is attacking Paul. He is saying, Paul's in it for the money. Paul really doesn't care. Paul's not a good shepherd. You don't want to listen to him. And, and, and the, the church was so precious to Paul, they're like his, his child, that, that, that he is in travail over their spiritual condition. He loves them. He loves their souls. And this man is, is destroying the church and turning the church against Paul. And it, I, can, I can grasp that as a pastor, you know, what it feels like. Because you lay down your life for the sheep. You would. If you're not, you're not a, you're not a pastor. You don't have a pastor's heart. But if you do, then, then you would. And, and to have that someone being subversive... And, and and someone turning. Um, so God, Paul prays three times, God, would you remove this man? Would you remove this thorn? And God says no. And you remember why? Now think about this. I will not remove, if this interpretation is correct, I will not remove a demonically fueled man who is actually turning people in a church which is a true church away from Paul being the leader and God says I will not do that because I don't want you to exalt yourself I want you to remain humble now is that not what James is talking about is maturity what do I want blow him up kill him there's a sin unto death right Take him out. This is your church. Preserve your church. Preserve your gospel. And we'll go forward for the kingdom. But God's ways and plans aren't always ours in the way they work out. And God says, of course, he's, when he's doing one thing, as Piper says, he's doing a million things. So he's doing things in Corinth, and, and he's going to sanctify those people in Corinth for following bad leadership at some point. He's going to sift out the wheat from the tares in his own way, all of that. But for Paul in particular, when he says no, 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 it's so humility will remain in the apostle so that he will not self-exalt so he could be a better apostle to other sheep. Now that's a humbling thing. That's maturity. So conflict, painful as it is, is not always your enemy. And resolution doesn't always come. But if you do it right, you know what does come? Maturity. And God to use you in many different ways. Look at C. Maintain a focus on the larger vision. Uh, uh, dis distinguish between doctrine and preference. Model and teach. This is not the end of the world. What God is doing is bringing about maturity. So let's do it right. And then always keep your eyes on something bigger. I mean, this is a really good principle for sanctification, period. It's really easy to get discouraged when you're focused on something that you disagree on. Focus on the larger vision. Christ in the church. The greater progress of the, of the gospel. If you get discouraged in your personal sanctification... Go back a little bit further. If God hasn't done anything in your life in the past month, go back three months. If you can't think of a particular blessing in three months, go back six. If you can't think of a particular blessing in a year, I mean, in six months, go back a year. If you can't think one a year, I mean, at some point you've got to start asking, okay, what's the issue here, right? 
but it's really easy to get to get myopic and stand back and take a take a take a wider berth, take a take a bigger bigger chunk, and look for the grace points in in your life. Same thing whenever conflict comes, whether it's with your kids or with your marriage or with another brother or or in the church. Um, it'll also reveal your heart. It'll reveal what what you're truly about and what you're passionate about. Your ministry's not growing. Your small group's not growing. You know your wife's not growing. Your whatever's not 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 happening. And you may be reminded that your focus is is on the results and on people and not on uh, not on God Himself. That's part of the sanctifying process. Maintain a focus on a, a larger vision. D, encourage everyone involved in the conflict to participate in the solution. So that brother that was at Red House, there was elders meetings that came up to that level, lots of discussion there. And now it came time to widen the scope and involve more people. Was he wrong to try to involve the church? No. That's what we were there for, was to involve the church. It was time to involve the church. It was the way in which he short-circuited the process. So everyone involved in the conflict should participate in the solution. They just may participate in different ways. Um, ask them to be involved in personal examination. Use the spiritual gifts of people that, that, that are there. Um, I can remember hearing a story of a at Heritage Baptist Church years ago. I'm talking 20 years ago. It's when Dr. Kroll was there really early on. The pastor that discipled me told told me the, the story. Um, where there was a particular meeting where one of the leaders was really discouraged. And there was a janitor that was there who was a deacon... And he made a comment. Like he stood up and ruled the day in the meeting and brought hope back to the men and back to the pastor. And it, it turned the tide from where they were headed and what they were doing to, to the end. What's my point to that? All of these men were using their spiritual gifts and couldn't come to a resolution. And there may be other spiritual gifts that you're not using in someone else. So... so Use the spiritual gifts that they're there. I've been in meetings. You've been in meetings where somebody will say something. And you go, I didn't think of that. It's beautiful. It's probably what's happening there. Uh, and then have ownership of the outcome. If people aren't invested and have ownership, and understand in our day and age. I, I mean, doing this will 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 separate genuine church folk from not. Because ownership means commitment, means understanding biblical ecclesiology. Um, but it's also necessary. Set short and long-term goals so that everyone can envision a fruitful outcome. Safeguards against laziness, forces diligent study, clear articulation of the principles, provides clear communication to the sheep. I think F is really important especially for those who who commit wholeheartedly to the process 
and commit to maturity even if the conflict isn't resolved. Build compassion for those who are driven away by friction. One of the most grieving things about conflict and disunity are the weaker sheep that get caught up in the fray and 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 scatter. Um, I turkey hunt. Well, I like to turkey hunt. I don't do it a lot since I've uh, went in ministry. But we used to do fall and spring. Spring turkey season, you go out in the woods and you go, it's, it's, it's mating season. So you go in one spot with a turkey call and you try to pretend you're a hen and you try to call the gobblers to you. It's contrary to their nature because the reason they're gobbling is to let the hens know where they are so the women can come to the, to the men. And you're the woman that's playing hard to get. And you're calling to the guy. So the, the gobbler is gobbling at you, going, no, no, I'm over here, come over here. And you stay in one place. And then his natural urges overtake, and he says, I'm going to go after, and then he's a dead turkey. Well, there's probably some illustrations in life about that. But anyway, in the fall, it's completely different. They're, they're not mating. They're all together in a flock. So if you find a flock of turkeys, what you do is something you don't do in any other part of hunting. You run in the midst of the flock of turkeys, yelling, screaming, and they scatter everywhere, scared to death. And then you sit down wherever the flock was, and you start doing lost call. And these other turkeys go, oh, my lost brother, I'm going to come back. And it's not a lost brother, it's a 12-gauge shotgun. <laughs> when conflict happens in the church... Yeah, I'm getting ready. That's it. There you go. When conflict happens in the church, it's like the guy in fall season running into the midst of the turkeys, yelling and screaming, and they all go flying in different directions. A faithful pastor, a faithful leader will give the lost call and not be there with a 12-gauge, but be there with the Word to draw them back together. Building compassion for those who are driven away by friction. Will all the turkeys come home? No, they won't. Some of them will fly. And a wilderness is sometimes needed for those who depart. Recognizing this helps guard against bitterness by challenging leaders to love the unlovely. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 Stephen Conley, would you read 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 And you know why I asked you to read this. You have quoted it to me before as something that has been precious to you. evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him in his will. That was one of the first verses I memorized as a pastor, and I've come back to it almost weekly since. The Lord's bondservant. You're a bondservant. That's what you are. You're an under-rower. And you must not be quarrelsome. You must be kind to all. Okay, I'll be kind to everybody, except whenever they wrong me. You have to be able to teach and patient when you're wronged. Even the people that depart in the wilderness for their wilderness experience. With gentleness... You don't sit back and just let them go. Correcting those who are in opposition. And then who's the one that grants repentance? God. And are they in a good position? No, they've been taken captive by the devil to do their will. And repentance looks like them coming to their senses. How stupid was I? I can't believe that. And that will happen... Obviously, when God grants it, but the means by which He may grant that repentance is you not being quarrelsome, you being kind, you being able, capable to show them their error, patient whenever they they do wrong, and then gently correcting them even if they're in opposition. That's hard, real shepherding work there, fellas. It is. Look at G. Work it. Huh? Yeah, go for it. Uh, corollary to this, what would happen if this isn't happening? Building passion for those who are driven away by friction. I think like you, you would be a core to stick around, right? It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's what you're talking about. Turning inward. It, it makes it all about self. The reason that you won't say to somebody what needs to be said in correcting them is because of yourself. You're you're selfish. You don't want their rejection. You don't want whatever damage. I mean, you may say something to somebody. I mean, if, if you have been in ministry, not just pastoral ministry, but if you've been in ministry to others, and you haven't had somebody get mad at you because you told them the truth, you haven't been telling, you haven't been doing your job. Now, I mean, again, and we don't be jerky when you do it, but I'm talking the truth is offense. Like, I have got a laundry list of relationships that I have been faithful in that people don't feel the same way because they've rejected the truth. There have been other times when I didn't do it right and I had to go repent. You know, I'm part of the problem, okay? So I'm not saying everybody that's not my friend is because they're, you know, they're all heretics, but... <laughs> the tw- thank you. <laughs> and you know, brother, you would probably have that 12-gauge at my on my at my back. You'd have my back because you're that kind of guy in a good way. You would. You're a good man. Um, so it's selfish when you won't correct them. 
you're making it about you, not about them, because they need to hear the truth. On the flip side, what Clay is saying, if they don't hear, it can be, oh, what was me? This guy's falling. How did I do this? And, and the next thing you know, it's about you again, and not about Christ or his church. And, and the Lord doesn't like that. I mean, it's an offense to him, really. I mean, you can make something that's about the Lord actually an offense to the Lord. It was really connected to how he viewed the, the trial itself. Like, he got back in 20 over there, you know. God's using us to work his glorious purposes in our heart. Yeah. So that's how we can love the unlovely. Yeah. It's ultimately, like, this is a gift to us, even though it's hard. you got to remember all those things. Um, so that gives us the ability to then love the unlovely. And so if we're not doing that, we can see we probably got a wrong view of that, what just happened to us. Yes. I just, these are, I come back to this all the time because I'm trying to counsel my own heart. You guys are counseling me in, in areas like this. So it's true. I, I don't have this down. I'm just, I see it in my own heart. So. Amen. G, work hard at defining and maintaining unanimity within leadership. It's one thing to have factions in the church. But not having spirit-led unanimity on doctrine and ministry principles will doom any church. Notice it's not unanimity on preferences. Two, spirit-led humility and deference on all principles. All preferences are necessary with a sensitivity about giftedness, strengths, and weaknesses. So you have to be gracious and have deference, give deference and, and humility on all preferences, but you must be unified on explicit doctrine and ministry principles or disunity will be there. Admonish and if necessary, discipline the wayward. Um, I'm not saying this in a in a condemning way, but more in a grieving way. Vast majority of churches don't admonish people, and they definitely don't discipline people. Why? Because it's hard. <laughs> people don't like you. They'll talk about you. You might even get a write up in the newspaper for doing the right thing. You might even have. Al Jazeera and Fox News on your school parking lot. It's not fun. But it's faithful. And we're not called to fun. We're called to faithful. Maintain open access to leadership by the congregation. Shepherd the flock of God among you. We prove to be gentle among you. So it's not the congregation is leaderless, but the leader is amongst the people. Anybody in this church can get me by cell phone, can set up an appointment with me at any point in time. And seven days a week, day or night, if it's if it's urgent. So the business world, my you know, the boss says the door is always open. And sometimes that was said and then you can't get through the secretary to get in to see the boss to have the conversation that's not the way it is in the church not the way it is in this church yeah. so most of us here are not elders yep so that also applies in the home because dads for your children 
talk to us. It does. You're right. Yeah. Try giving people commands and see how well they'll follow you if they don't think that you love them. Do that relationship. It won't last very long. Um, well, that's not even a biblical model. Consistently develop wise leadership for the next generation. If your church is like Corinth, or your family is like Corinth, or your relationships are like Corinth, um, develop wise leadership, disciple others. If you blew it with your older child, work with your middle child. Exercise prudent forethought in regard to significant ministry changes. Well, that's there because a lot of conflict doesn't have to do with doctrine. It has to do with with things like the proverbial color of the carpet or we don't want to do a wana, we want to do something else. What? We've had a wana for 58 years here, right? I mean, that's the conflict comes. Biblical Christians are learning how to be peacemakers. We should know how to make peace. We should know how to diagnose the root cause of lack of peace. And growing to be a peacemaker is some of the hardest work you will ever do. The purpose of striving is is unity. Absence of conflict is not peace. The person can go away and the conflict may go with them. But that's not peace. That's what most unbelievers, how most unbelievers deal with their lack of peace with God, right? I don't go to church. I don't want to be under sermons. I don't want to be around Christians. Because I don't want to be reminded that I don't have peace with God. Well, well, that's not... That's not unity with God. That's not that's not peace. So we're sent in to be a peacemaker, and one of the ways that we make peace is exposing the issue to begin with. So peace, real peace, can actually be, be brought about. What are some principles for being a peacemaker in conflict? Well, we're back to Romans 14. You won't have to turn there, but we'll read them. A, Christ is the Lord over the conscience. Is the conflict an explicit issue of Scripture or a gray area or a preference? And you may have a better angle of working that principle. You may be right. You may be the stronger one. They may be the weaker one. But if it is not explicitly commanded in Scripture, you have no right to bind their conscience. And in that case, you trust God and the authorities that he's ordained in that situation and you let him work it out. He may need to take them through that trial. They may need to figure out that you were right through falling. In fact, we're going to read a passage on Sunday 
in Mark about Peter's prediction and the disciples' prediction of them denying Christ and scattering. And Jesus knows about it before they do it. And he doesn't keep them from it. He lets them go through it. And he says to Peter, when you are restored, strengthen the brethren. So what's his point? I'm letting you go through this. I'm preserving you from being ultimately devastated. And I'm doing it for your own sanctification and for the brethren. And that may be happening. Others are not beholden to me. They fall or stand under Christ. Yes. That just goes back to what you said earlier about a wilderness is sometimes needed. It is. Yeah. It is, for sure. Um, look at B. Tensions can be good for your own heart. Exposes weaknesses. We get sharpened in the confirmation or confrontation to examine our own convictions and become more precise in their articulation. I never will forget the first time that I ever heard anyone say they didn't believe in the rapture of the church. What do you mean you don't believe in the rapture of the church? Everybody believes in the rapture of the church. I didn't know that there was such a thing as post-mill, all-mill, anything else. I mean, I, just, I came out of church, so this is what I was preached. And they said, well, that's what I believe, because right here in Matthew 24, it's what it says. And what? why do you believe what you believe? And honestly, my answer was because that's what my pastor told me. And I had never done the text work and worked through the, through the Scripture myself. So I did. And when I came out the other side, I, I had a firm conviction of my position. That's an example of how being challenged about something or a conflict can force you to sharpen yourself and know. Exposes weaknesses. It, 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 it causes you to examine your own convictions. See, open the Bible early in any conflict. The Bible always rules, and you want to stay in the bounds of Scripture because outside of it, conflict grows. Your goal is whatever God said. Be haunted to be precise with God's Word and our speech. Challenge yourself to articulate your speech with painstaking clarity. And what does clarity mean? Meaning clear in God's Word. A lot of worldly principles, worldliness has crept into our thinking and the way we deal with conflict and we don't even realize it. How about this one? Iron sharpens iron. How many times have you quoted that? How does iron sharpen? What does it look like? You ever watched Iron Sharpen Iron? My grandfather was a, I mean, he loved to farm. And he had a hoe, a true temper hoe. They used to make them in Charleston, West Virginia. And, you know, the hoe's like this thick. I mean, it was like that thick where he had, he had sharpened it with a, with a grinder and a file. You'd do that every single spring to make the hoe sharper. And he, he, I mean, he, it was less than half, maybe a third of what it was because he used it so much. And I can remember him going into the grinder or him taking the file and sparks flying. 
That's what happens when iron sharpens iron. Collision, friction, sparks. So conflict sharpens us. Lack of pressure makes us weak. Conflict provides a challenge for my greater good and for my endurance. And growing in peacemaking stretches my humility. Endurance and humility are two. Comments? Questions? My uh, youngest son, who was a hockey player, dad, he would always tell people that a hockey fight is a good example of Christian resolution of a problem. <laughs> and people would go, what? He said, they recognize the problem, they address the problem, they reconcile the problem. <laughs> and if you ever saw a hockey fight, when the fight's over, the two guys that are fighting yeah. are usually patting one another on the back. Yeah. Especially if it's a younger player and a more experienced player, that more experienced player will go up and go, good job, kid. And they'll, they'll go to the penalty box and serve their time. That's what I was thinking. The penalty box. Bad church members go to the penalty box. Or 12 gauge. Whichever comes first. All right, gentlemen. If nothing else, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and yet how difficult it is for us, how weak we are to put it into practice. And we pray for the empowerment of your spirit and your great work of grace in us. We thank you for the unity that we have. Um, I know of no disunity or issue in our congregation. Um, but I don't know of every, of every relationship. I don't know of the men here this morning or the ones that aren't even here where conflict needs to be addressed, um, confrontation needs to happen, uh, love and care for, for one who's scattered needs to take place. And I just pray that you would, you would accomplish all of those things because ultimately it's about you and you would give us the grace to remember that even today bless these men as they go to work thank you for their love for you of showing up here in Jesus name Amen see you Sunday brothers